Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Backer. In this episode, we will dive into the importance of sustainable water use and water use efficiency. According to the EPA, the U.S. population has doubled over the past 50 years, while our thirst for water has tripled. With at least 40 states anticipating water shortages by 2024, the need to conserve water is critical. As climate change continues to exacerbate water stress, finding ways to better stretch our water supplies will constitute a key adaptation strategy. Water use efficiency, from showerheads to irrigation, is a significant part of meeting that challenge. Today, I am joined by Marianne Dickinson, the co-chair of the American Planning Association's Water and Planning Network, and Adam Shemp, senior attorney at ELI, to learn more about water use efficiency efforts and policy in the U.S. Marianne, Adam, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you. So I'd like to start off by asking, why is water efficiency important? So the reason water efficiency is important is that it is actually a supply option, a water supply option for local communities. Building new supplies to accommodate growing populations can be very costly. They often have great environmental impacts if you're moving water across watershed boundaries. And these supply solutions take decades to complete. They can be very expensive. Whereas water efficiency can be done immediately, can yield savings that can be applied to new growth elsewhere in the system. It is very much a cost-effective strategy for water utility. To give you an example, the city of Los Angeles, by investing in water efficiency and conservation programs, uses now in 2023 the same amount of water that they used in 1970 with a million and a half more people. So water efficiency is a very important strategy in terms of accommodating growth, accommodating good efficient system management at the water utility level. And it's a much cheaper alternative than new supplies like reservoir building, desalination, or any other type of large water supply project. And that's really how water efficiency first began to be very well subscribed to and funded by utilities that were in supply short situations. Thank you, Marianne, for that very important context. So I'm curious, how did you both get into this field of water efficiency? So I guess I'll start off. My background is in environmental planning and government relations, and I was the manager of government affairs for Regional Water Authority in South Central Connecticut in New Haven. And one day the general manager came down and said to me, oh, we're going to give you a new assignment, something you've not been doing before. We need somebody to do it because they just passed a state law. I said, what is it? And he said, water conservation said, I don't know anything about water conservation. And he said, well, nobody else here does either. And nobody, frankly, wants it. So we're going to give it to you because it's a government thing. And that's how I ended up starting in water conservation. It went from a little conversation like that with a general manager to my running the Connecticut statewide program with 63 utilities in it, which suddenly became a surprisingly big success that the utilities never expected. They actually would have preferred to sue the state of Connecticut for an unfunded state mandate. But it worked out really well and was very popular with the customers and suddenly began to think, hmm, this is a very interesting subject that's not well understood and not well resourced. 
Great. Thanks so much, Marianne. What about you, Adam? Well, so I was an intern on Capitol Hill when I was in college. I was working for my representative from Georgia and was assigned to a project doing background research for a potential bill on water quantity issues. That really sparked my interest in water policy generally. And I got very quickly into both the quantity and the quality issues and came to learn very early on just how important water use efficiency is in terms of any solutions to either of those problems. And that it is a very significant puzzle piece and something that, as Marianne just mentioned, doesn't get the credit it deserves. Marianne, you mentioned two key concepts, water conservation and water efficiency. Can you help us parse out the difference between the two? Yes, that's actually a question many people have. What's the difference between it or are they the same thing? And water conservation has been a term that's generally applied to people's behavior, whereas water efficiency is applied to the fixtures that people are using. So to give you an example, you can put in a high efficiency shower head in your bathroom, and that's a water efficiency measure. But the amount of time you spend under that efficient shower head is the behavioral part of the water conservation program. Conservation is both behavior and the fixture replacement. Efficiency is conducting the same activity with a more efficient fixture device that helps you use less water for that same activity. In addition to showerhead fixtures, how else might water efficiency come up in people's everyday lives? So typically, people encounter water efficiency devices in their plumbing systems, their toilets, their shower heads, their faucets. If they go to a sports event, you know, the men will find water efficient urinals. Those began to be the first products that were incentivized as water efficient products through labeling and through legislative standards. And that's typically what people think of when they think of water efficiency and water conservation. But they forget about the landscape urinals irrigation system in their backyard and how much water that actually consumes is something most people don't understand. Typically, they'll say, I can serve. I turn off the water when I brush my teeth. But that's, you know, a couple of gallons maybe in a day, whereas there's hundreds of gallons going out every time their sprinkler turns on, and that's treated drinking water going out on the lawn. We use water in a wide variety of ways, all of which can be managed better and more efficiently. And the consumers need to be educated as to what they can do to make sure their behavior is more efficient. And it really starts with all the products that use water in their homes and in their businesses. So does that mean that for urban residents who do not have lawns, that they're less implicated in the problem? Says the person who grew up in New York City. I might have ulterior motives for asking this question, yes. You might not have a lawn or outdoor landscaping to irrigate, which often is a very big piece of a residential water bill, but you are using a lot of water. People really don't realize how much water their toilet uses and their washing machine uses. Those are very big water users. And so replacing those fixtures, making them more efficient, making sure that behaviorally you're only washing full loads of laundry, you're only in the shower for (laughs) a very short period of time, not 20 minutes. Those are all very important strategies that even the urban dweller that has no outdoor landscaping can think about. But I know lots of urban dwellers that have landscape areas 
on their decks and they have potted plants and they have all kinds of exotic flowers that they're growing and they're watering those too. So you'd be surprised how much water people use that they are not really aware of. My favorite story I like to tell about this is the East Bay Municipal Utility District in California did a on-the-street survey asking customers on the street, how much water does your house use? The standard answer was 25 gallons a day for a family of four. When told it was maybe eight times, 10 times that, their answer was, oh, we don't use that much water. Oh, but my neighbor does. (laughs) So I think there is really a very poor understanding of how much water people use, no matter where they live and what kind of dwelling they live in. And that's part of what we need to do in terms of education of not only school children, but adults as to what role they have in controlling their own level of water consumption. This all seems very concrete. Much like energy efficiency, actually. But why hasn't water use efficiency gotten as much traction? Well, you know, it's funny. When I first started working in water efficiency after standards for toilets were passed at the federal level, uh, I couldn't tell people when I was flying on a plane, what I did for a living, because I got everybody's toilet story. Everybody is a water conservation expert if they've had any kind of a problem with their toilet. But Really, we have had issues with plumbing for a 100 years. It's not something new with water efficiency. And that's the biggest misconception. People think that the high efficiency fixtures do not work. And actually, the reverse is true. They have been re-engineered and the manufacturing process has made those devices a lot more efficient. They perform better than they did in the past. And that's the biggest misconception I find out there. People think they have to have a lot of water to get their toilet to flush properly. And that's simply not true. They think they have to have a lot of water in their backyard to keep their lawn green. And as their lawn yellows, because it's actually being overwatered, they end up applying more water to it because they think it needs more water. There's really a, a big misunderstanding about how much water is needed to achieve all the various different purposes in the home. And as we consider legislative standards for all these devices, there's often pushback, even from the plumbing industry, because they're concerned that the consumers will not understand that these devices will actually work. And so that's the biggest misconception that we find out there. It's ended up in political discussions. It's ended up in community discussions. And we want water efficiency to be thought of in a positive vein. And these misconceptions actually get in the way of that. To answer your question about why isn't it more like energy efficiency, energy efficiency is a little easier to understand mainly because energy is delivered to the house. It's very clear how much you turn on your lights, you turn off your lights. There isn't the kind of concept of leakage like there is with water. You can have a leak in your toilet or a leak in your plumbing system, and that charges you money on your water bill. Whereas in energy, you don't quite have that leakage. If people don't shut off their computers or shut off the TV or shut off lights, then they can clearly see energy is on and energy is off. But we had so much activity that happened early on during President Carter's administration administration with the creation of the Department of Energy and the energy crisis that we all went through in 1975, that energy got a real foothold nationally and was treated as an area of national security concern. Whereas water, because it's regulated by states and not the federal government in the same way and not incentivized by the federal government in the same way, water efficiency has never achieved that same level of parity as energy efficiency, even though they're very, very similar in the goals, the cost-effective savings they achieve, and the reductions that save carbon in the long run. 
I completely agree with Marianne. I would say that I feel like the water efficiency side of the coin has been learning a lot and being able to use a fair amount from the energy efficiency advancements, but I still think in many ways it trails. And in terms of individuals being familiar with their water usage and having it be a more real-time understanding of what their water usage is and where some of the problems may be. Uh, I mean, I, for one, in, in New York, I get a water bill twice a year, and those water bills are not in any way broken down by usage at different times in the month, let alone different times of day. The fact that you get a water bill twice a year horrifies me, actually, <laughs> because if there was something wrong that you might be billed for, you wouldn't hear about it for months and the bill would be a lot higher. If there's a leak that just is growing as time goes on, you don't get the bill to even see where it is. So we're trying to make changes in the requirements for multifamily buildings and making sure individual units are metered and billed separately. Because if they're not submetered and billed separately, the customer has absolutely no idea what their water usage is and how much it's actually going to cost in the long run. So these are big issues that we need to resolve. They've been largely resolved in energy. You don't get to use any energy or sign up for an account without a meter. And that needs to be true everywhere in water, even for multifamily units. Marianne, you mentioned federal action on energy efficiency. Can you speak to what has been done for water efficiency at the federal level? So sadly, I don't think there's been enough done on the federal level in water efficiency. There have been times in the past where I've been lucky enough to testify before Congress to tell them what I think they ought to do about it. Not that they've listened to me particularly, but in 1992, they did pass a very big piece of landmark legislation on water efficiency, which was, ironically, the Energy Policy Act of 1992. And that law had plumbing standards for toilets, shower heads, urinals, and faucets that went into effect in 1994. And those standards have saved a huge amount of water nationally. It has been calculated by the Alliance for Water Efficiency uh, how much was saved by just that toilet standard alone between 1994 and uh, 2014. And in those 20 years, 18.2 trillion gallons of water was saved by moving to a toilet standard that was from three and a half to five gallons of flush down to 1.6 gallons per flush, which is the equivalent of six liters in Europe. And so while 18.2 trillion gallons sounds like a lot, one way to think about it is it's the same amount of water that the city of New York, the city of Chicago, and the city of Los Angeles together use in 20 years. That's the same amount of water that they use in that 20-year period. So it's a huge amount of savings that have occurred, and they would not have occurred had that federal law not been passed. And so we've made some progress since then. We've now got a labeling program that labels plumbing fixtures to be even more efficient, but we don't really have a lot else other than those standards and that labeling program to go on. There's no connection between the amount of energy that's saved with water efficiency. There's a huge amount of energy and carbon that's saved when utility is not pumping and treating that water that's then wasted. So those kinds of savings and carbon credits need to be recognized for the water utility world. And that's probably going to require some sort of legislation on either the federal or state level. Adam, you've been doing a lot of work 
and analyzing state laws with respect to water efficiency. And that's really important work because as states take a look at how they fare alongside other states, they begin to get incentivized to maybe create more state laws of their own. Before we get to some of the accomplishments that have been made at the state level, could you say a word about WaterSense? WaterSense, for those who don't know, is basically the cousin of Energy Star, which many of you are probably familiar with in terms of purchasing a television or another appliance. But it is an EPA program that incentivizes or basically creates criteria for the water fixtures that we've been talking about. So the WaterSense program, although it's a voluntary program, the label has been extraordinarily successful. Hundreds of devices have been labeled, and the market has largely moved to supplying WaterSense programs everywhere, from big box stores to plumbing houses that sell products to contractors. When customers are going to buy plumbing equipment or irrigation equipment, if they look for the WaterSense label, they will find a product that uses 20% less water than what the federal standard mandates and has also been performance tested to ensure that it works well. And that's a very important criterion for me. That performance standard really assures the customer that even though it's not using much water, it actually is performing just as well or even better than the fixture that they're replacing it with. As you mentioned, and I think that's important with regard to WaterSense, because that does lead into what some of the states have done. They basically run with the WaterSense standard for purposes of requiring a more efficient threshold for these fixtures, be they toilets, shower heads, urinals, than what is in the Energy Policy Act of 1992. So some states have set requirements, and this is usually in the form of sales at point of sale that these fixtures that people are purchasing or that are being sold have to have water sense labels or that they basically set that standard for purposes of state law at the water sense level. The other way of kind of approaching this has been a number of states have also more or less followed California's lead in what are commonly referred to as the California standards. States have just been drawing out those standards that California has used for these more efficient fixtures. Following the fixtures approach, We've seen instances where states have required it through their plumbing codes or through their building codes, where they have required for purposes of construction that these certain fixtures be used. In most states, local governments historically have been the ones responsible for adopting building and plumbing codes. But since very few of them have actually incorporated these more efficient fixture requirements in there, it's really important what those state requirements are. Other things that have arisen, and as Marianne alluded to, ELI in its very traditional fashion has been analyzing state laws for for quite a few years now. It started with this project with the Alliance for Water Efficiency back in 2010 that has since had three iterations of what we refer to it as the state policy scorecard of water efficiency and sustainability. And so this has been something that ELI has been doing in collaboration with the Alliance for Water Efficiency for the last basically 15, 16 years. And this report card looks at various criteria, various elements of state law and identifies successes in terms of water efficiency. So in addition to the fixture requirements, some of the other things that we have looked for 
our financial support and technical assistance for water utilities and their conservation programs. We also provide scoring with regard to the requirements that water suppliers implement rate structures that encourage conservation. Again, going to Marianne's point about that distinction between water use efficiency and conservation. But what are the practices and how do the rate structures encourage lower water use? And then one of the other big things, and Marianne also touched on this one briefly, but Leakage. What sort of requirements are there in state laws with regard to the limits that are placed on water loss in utility distribution systems? In addition to leakage, that could be storage overflows, customer meter inaccuracies, billing system data errors, unauthorized consumption across the board. But basically the difference between how much water is treated and how much water is actually used at the tap by the consumers. Again, this information, if anybody's interested, is available. You can just look up Alliance for Water Efficiency and the state water scorecard, and you'll see the 2012, 2015, and 2022 versions of that document. But it gets into a lot more detail uh, of how we scored, what we were looking for. And one of the major objectives of this piece of work is really trying to help states learn from one another so they can see some of the real successes. And more of the replication that we've been seeing, for example, with regard to this California standard and states kind of borrowing from each other to become more efficient. Marianne, I feel like you'd be a great person to cover some of the local issues and some of the successes that have been covered there, including some of the work that we've done in the past together on that. Right. At the same time that Adam was working on the state scorecard, the first time I was sitting on my local utility water board and our water board, because of the serious drought that we were experiencing, had to issue a development moratorium because we simply didn't have the water to supply new connections. We barely had the water to supply existing connections. And that was a volcano erupting in the community. We had a lot of developers who came to the meetings and said, you can't say no to development if you will put me completely out of business. I have a family to feed. And where are all these people who want houses going to go? Just recently, Gavin Newsom, governor of the state of California, promised to build 3.5 million homes in the state of California, a state that has been stricken with drought over the years and where water supply is limited for existing customers, much less new ones. One of the issues that we started looking at was the issue of water-neutral development. And in my current role as co-chair of the Water and Planning Network for the American Planning Association, we just did a webinar on showcasing examples of where communities have done new development that was water neutral uh, to the water utility system because they offset their water use. They reduce their new demand by being much more efficient with the development plans, but they also offset the remaining new demand, the new supply that they would need by offsetting and doing conservation programs elsewhere off-site from their development within the community. And so the whole topic of water-neutral development, which usually is enabled by a local ordinance at the local level, is now getting a lot of discussion, not just here in the United States. I was at a conference where I heard a presentation from the United Kingdom where they're requiring now that any new housing in Cambridge has to offset its water use. So this whole issue of water-neutral development and programs to promote water-neutral development is a new area that's coming to the fore. You're going to see a lot of discussion at the local level, how 
how that ought to be regulated. And so what Adam mentioned was a project that we worked on together called NetBlue that developed a model ordinance, uh, offset methodology, outreach strategies to developers and consumers. It's a whole free toolkit program that can help communities design a local program that will meet their needs for what they want to achieve and the amount of water neutrality or even water positivity that they want to encourage from their development. So development can go forward if it meets these terms and conditions and we don't have to face a situation where we have a a moratorium again in the future. One thing I'll mention for any policy wonks, one of the unique things about that model ordinance was that because the circumstances were just so different in a lot of the communities that we were looking at and that for which this would apply, both in terms of why there was the pressure on their water supplies, as well as what some of the opportunities might be for addressing it, this ordinance is not a one size fits all, just print it out, change a few lines and you're good to go. It really is a fill in the blank, almost like Mad Libs for uh, policy way of trying to go about developing it, but it provides all the key things to think about with regard to putting something like this together and really is meant as more of an interactive tool for those various entities, those in government to devise what would be appropriate for their particular situation. So it's a really neat, different kind of approach to this, but one that was really necessary in order to try to build something that would work for this purpose in such diverse situations that people find themselves in with with regard to their water supplies. That's really an important point that Adam is making. Every community is going to be different as to what it needs to achieve. And in terms of what the states are doing in giving them guidance is next to nothing. There are only nine states in the country that require that the water suppliers incorporate land use planning into their water plans. And what that means is that local communities have been kind of struggling with these issues all on their own. And the Water and Planning Network, which I co-chair, is also a free network that anyone can join. We did do a webinar on the water neutral development and the ordinance that Adam just described. And so if you're interested in being part of the Water and Planning Network, which is moving toward trying to get the silos of water planners and land use planners to actually crumble and have everybody talk to each other. All you have to do is just email water at planning.org and we'll make you part of the network. It's free and we'll send you the webinar recording of this water neutral development project that we worked on together. And I'd also mention with regard to this net blue water lower consumption approach that there are some jurisdictions out there that have had some success with it. It, it implemented it and there is progress. So in addition to getting involved in the network, which will be linked in the description of this episode, along with other resources, Marianne, how can our listeners get involved in improving water efficiency in their communities? That's a great question because water issues have not been well discussed at the community level. They tend to be raised only at maybe the state level or at at a regional level if the water supplies are coming from watersheds that are in a far distance. We tend not to think about the fact that the water we're consuming often is coming from a local watershed. Texas developed a program that they called Water IQ, which was testing whether people knew where their water came from 
And most people didn't realize. They just said, well, it comes from the tap. And when they realized it was coming from a local community reservoir or a local lake that they have always gone to for recreational purposes, and they realized that the alternating, fluctuating levels of that water body are due to the overconsumption that's happening from the community, that connection then makes water efficiency a little bit more alive. This story I like to tell is I have a granddaughter. She's at that age that she plays with Barbie dolls, and she plays with them in the shower. And I said to my daughter-in-law, she's been in the shower for 20 minutes. And my daughter-in-law said, yeah, she plays with her Barbies in the shower. So one day as a way of sort of educating my granddaughter, I took her to my local lake that I live at. And she said, Nana, the water level is down really low at the beach where we usually go on the water. Why is that? And I said, because people are taking too long showers like you. And and suddenly the message clicked in her head. And my daughter-in-law told me later, she said, what did you tell her? Now she doesn't want to take a shower at all. (laughs) I think the linkage between what the local resources are in the community, the water resources and how consumption is altering them going forward over time. It all ties into the climate change message. It ties into what we all need to do to use water less wastefully to help with that. And I think those conversations at the community level would be really important. And we we need to encourage that they happen. For individuals where their local water resources are plentiful and their watershed is healthy, why should they care about water efficiency? So where water is plentiful and where water resources aren't constrained, you would think water efficiency doesn't need to be an issue. But fundamentally, a customer is still paying for the water they consume, and they'll pay more because they're charged volumetrically in their rate for how much water they use. They'll save money in their bill if they're more efficient. They may have a lot of water now, but maybe that isn't going to be the case in the future. That may change. But good habits that are developed can also save them money on their water bill. And that can be a very important incentive. And to take that one step further, there also are externalities for water. Marianne touched on already the energy consumption that's involved in treating water, both in terms of water before it arrives at people's houses, as well as the wastewater from going down the drain. We talked a little bit about water quality impacts. Some of the nutrients running off your yard from the fertilizer making its way down and some of the algal blooms that you see can be caused by that runoff. Your bill is certainly a big way to kind of understand and appreciate some of those impacts, but understanding some of the other consequences that come with greater water usage, even if you're not necessarily in a water-strapped area. Following up on the point that Adam made about water and energy, there was some interesting work that was done in the state of California to quantify how much energy was embedded in water supply treatment, distribution, wastewater treatment, and then discharge. And it really ended up being a whole lot more energy than anyone anticipated between 2,000 and 20,000 kilowatt hours for every million gallons of water produced. Huge amount of energy that's embedded in that water supply and wastewater treatment. And so as we look at saving energy, sometimes a very cost-effective way to save that energy is to save water. And that, again, was another study done in California that showed that during the drought year of 2015 to 2016, more energy was saved by the water utilities doing drought conservation than by the energy utilities with energy efficiency programs that were basically reimbursed for about a billion dollars a year. And the irony of it was 
water conservation energy savings was only 10 cents a kilowatt hour versus the energy efficiency programs, which were three times that. So why aren't we actually incentivizing water utilities for the energy saved and the carbon that they are reducing? They don't get any credit for it. There's no legal tie-in for them. It's only the energy utilities that can claim that carbon reduction. As a nation and as individual states start setting carbon reduction targets, this is an opportunity for from a climate change perspective, to have water utilities be a real partner in this if they can legally be allowed to um, to get carbon credits for the energy savings from these water efficiency programs. Because as we all know, as climate change is rapidly changing our lives and our weather patterns and the way water is being used, it clearly is an important adaptation strategy as well as a mitigation strategy. And this is something we need to pay a whole lot more attention to on the federal level. Well, Marianne, Adam, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a really informative conversation about how water efficiency can help save water and promote sustainable water use. And now I'm going to go check that the products that I use have the Water Sense label. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.